Thank you for joining us. This is the Fisheries Podcast, a weekly podcast that shares the stories of the amazing people and projects that make up fisheries science. If you haven't already, follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at FisheriesPod. If you are the generous sort, you can be like Garrett Walker, Ben, Janet, Robin, and John, who all support the podcast on Patreon. Through Patreon, you're able to support the show with either a recurring or one-time donation, which helps us pay for various parts of the show. If that isn't your thing, you can also purchase Fisheries Pod shirts, hoodies, stickers, and face masks on our Teespring store. So check it out. Our guest today is Dusty McDonald. Dusty earned a Bachelor's of Fine Arts in Biology at Shriner College in 2000 and bounced around a couple of jobs before receiving his master's degree from Texas State University in 2003 studying fountain darters in Tim Bonner's lab. His career then switched from a freshwater focus to marine with his hiring as a researcher at the Perry R. Bass Marine Fisheries Research Station in Palacios, Texas. He worked in Palacios for 12 years investigating various marine issues before landing a position with the Inland Fisheries Division where he works today. Welcome to the podcast, Dusty. Thanks. Great to be here. So we're in the spooky season with Halloween tomorrow. This episode comes out on the 30th. So I thought we'd start by talking about ghosts, specifically ghost fishing. What is ghost fishing and and what bait works best for catching ghosts? Okay. Yeah. Ghost fishing is defined as the act of abandoned fishing gears, which continue to fish without any kind of man interaction. Uh, so if you kind of imagine a net just being left alone in a body of water and it would catch fish and catch organisms. And then over time, those fish would die and they would act, attract other organisms. So just a constant uh, collection of of, of organisms. And in your example, and generally when we think of ghost fishing, we think of nets or trawls in the ocean as ghost gear, but, but the term can also apply to freshwater. Uh, what gear or gears could be ghost fished in inland systems? Any passive gear could potentially catch uh, organisms if, if left alone. So if you just think of anything like you could think of uh, like a freshwater trawl net, or you could think of a minnow uh, traps, that sort of thing. Uh, even hooks potentially could could ghost fish, and that was some of the work that I looked at. As you alluded, you and some co-authors recently had a paper come out looking at ghost fishing of trot lines. I guess what's the backstory there? What what inspired that project? Well, growing up on Lake Corpus Christi, we always noticed abandoned trot lines, and you just kind of wonder if if these were being checked periodically or not, but you see like lots of algae on the line. It didn't look like those, those lines were, were really being caught. I remember that as a young child. And so when I switched over to inland fisheries, my supervisor asked me, you know, like what kind of project do you think you'd want to do? Uh, we're all required to be doing some sort of special study. And I said, well, you know, I'd, I'd be interested to look at uh, ghost fishing, you know, uh, coming from my Marine background, there was a, uh, a lot of work being done on ghost fishing of crab traps. They actually uh, uh, do an annual crab trap cleanup. And the, the hope originally was, was to potentially get a, a cleanup started with these freshwater trot lines. All right. And before we dive into the article, you'd, would you mind highlighting Texas's current trot line regulations? Because it might differ between different states. In Texas, each angler is, is allowed 100 hooks per day. And trot lines can be up to uh, 50 trot line, uh, 50 hooks per trot line. Uh, most of them, uh, in fact, around, you know, 25 hooks per trot line. And then they're also required now to have uh, some kind of marking, like a float uh, on each end of the trot line. That, that not only helps you find the trot line, 
but also helps law enforcement find the trot lines. It helps skiers find these trot lines and swimmers as well. So um, the other thing is that they have to be uh, marked in some way. You can use your uh, Parks and Wildlife Fishing License number if you want to um, not put your information, but you can also put your name and, and the date it was actually put out. Um, those those are the main requirements. Is there a certain oh, oh, period? Oh, and, and I want to add that we used to have uh, a soap time of 10 days, and now it's uh, been reduced to six days. Yeah, I just thought that would be useful information for people to keep in mind as we you know, go through some of the, the way you built your, your study, I suppose. Um, one of the ways you evaluated ghost trout lines was through a simulated fishing experience at uh, a few hatchery ponds. I guess what kind of things were you looking at in these simulated trials? The main thing I wanted to look at was the uh, the long term duration of trot lines in the field. Uh, so this the reservoir simulation was to to get some baseline data to kind of help me formulate that part of the study. So the main thing we looked at is first to answer the question is do uh, hook bear hooks attract channel catfish? That was the, the species that we utilized. And um, I, I, I got assistance from a colleague of mine. It was Amanda Boyles did a lot of the, uh, the uh, fish checks, uh, the hook checks. And then Donovan Patterson kind of coordinated everything and also did checks as well. And so we've, we set up two different ponds. One of them had baited hooks and one of them did not. And then we just monitored over time to see if there's a difference between uh, the collections over time. So we did some 21 day t trials. We uh, did some in the summer and some in the winter. Uh, we, we found some, some information in the literature that suggested that there's uh, more uh, fish captures in the wintertime versus the summer. So we, we wanted to evaluate that. And then we looked at two different hook styles. We looked at J hooks, which is a common uh, hook that they use in these trot line kits. And uh, we also looked at circle hit uh, hooks, uh, Circle hooks are a popular trot line uh, hook used by uh, serious trot liners. So, um, and the reason why we went with the trot line kits is that early on we we decided, well, what kind of angler would actually abandon trot line? It's probably not going to be someone who uses really expensive equipment, you know, like paracord and expensive stainless steel hooks. It's probably going to be someone that buys one of these generic trot line kits at a sporting goods store. So that's the reason why we went that direction. What were these trot lines baited with? Did you base this on a previous studies of uh, bait preference or was it just what, what anglers were using? A couple of those, uh, both really. Uh, common carp, we use cubed common carp. Um, I, we, we found some information in the literature and, and just talking to some local anglers around here, that's just a common bait that's used. What did you find in the, in the simulated study in regards to the hook style and, and the retention of fish? Well, interestingly, we found no significant differences between the catches of our baited hooks versus our unbaited hooks, which was really interesting information. Now, it, it could be that, you know, you have this concentration of fish that could have actually uh, increased our, uh, you know, the, the location of the hook in relation to the fish, which may have, have caused uh, the reason why we had so many baitless hooks bit. But, but it was interesting information. It kind of uh, just proved a, the, the simple point that, that, that bear hooks can catch fish. 
And another thing we found is, is that we found that circle hooks caught one and a half times more channel cats than the J hooks. And the J hooks actually caused more body snags than the circle hooks. So the circle hooks seem, seem, seem like it'd be a good hook to utilize for our long-term study. And uh, because, and I don't know if, if the circle hooks were catching more fish because they were attracting more fish or if they were just retaining fish longer. So another interesting thing we found is that the winter season tend to retain fish longer than in the summertime. If you think about a fish being a little bit more lethargic in the wintertime, I think that has a lot to do with it. And you also noted if fish were snagged and the mortality associated with that snagging, uh, was there any differences in the mortality of fish if they were snagged or whether they were caught in the mouth? Yeah, uh, summer caught snagged fish or snagged fish lap, uh, could only survive around four days when uh, mouth caught fish could live up to about 20 days. The, we had 21 day trial, so we're, we may have to actually be underestimating how long these fish could potentially live on these hooks if they're mouth caught. And were there any differences in the mortality across seasons for those snagged fish as well? Yes, the summer caught fish did die considerably sooner than the, the winter caught fish. The next part of the study, though, is kind of informed by your, your hatchery trials, tested your trout lines on actual reservoir to look at the catching ability over time and across seasons. I guess, what were some of the results that stood out from this part of the study? Just to kind of get a little bit of background on this. So we wanted to select a, a reservoir that was somewhat close to us so that we can check it periodically. So we wanted something that we can check twice a week. And so we chose Lake Corpus Christi and we... Uh, set tr uh, 12 trot lines with circle hooks and we baited them the first day and then we would monitor them all the hooks we had a, a little program here where we put like a colored zip, uh, zip tie after every fifth hook to where we can keep all of our information the same and we'd actually use a yardstick to measure the fish and then we monitor whether the fish was alive or dead and so um one of the more interesting things that we found is that, yes, uh, abandoned trot lines do catch fish. They catch a lot of fish and uh, a lot of different species of fish. Um, we even we caught turtles. We caught uh, a cormorant uh, amongst a, an array of different freshwater species fish. As far as the uh, information on uh, how long these trot lines last, they can last over a year. These little cotton fiber trot line kits uh, can last a long time. We, we, we purposely did topwater sets. That's kind of how they're designed to be set. And so when we lost trot lines, we, we just kind of imagined that they're probably being either cut by anglers or large fish are, are causing the trot lines to break or perhaps uh, boats are actually uh, breaking the lines itself. So, um, and so once a trot line is broke, if there's no underwater structure or brush or anything like that, they often just hit the sediment and the, and the, and the, and the hooks will actually just kind of rust out. And so we, once a trot line was broken, we, we often uh, determined that gear, it has deteriorated. Now, there was a few situations where we had these trot lines actually catch some underwater brush and they were actually able to continue to fish. So uh, we just monitor these trot lines until 80% um, of the hooks were completely uh, missing, broken, uh, lost, or 
deteriorated. So that, that gives you some background on, on the deterioration of the, of, of the trot lines. Um, trot lines in general, we caught, uh, as I said, a, a number of, of species. We did two different trials. We did a summer trial and a winter trial. And in our summer trial, we found that the majority of the catches happened within about 14 weeks. After 14 weeks, the trot lines pretty much stopped. I mean, we were not catching any more fish. The winter set trot lines caught fish up to about 48 weeks. So uh, there's a significant difference there between the, the, uh, the seasons. We caught considerably more fish in the winter season. It kind of goes back to what we saw in the literature as well. Um, it just seems like uh, in, in the wintertime, fish just uh, did a much better job of just staying alive on those hooks. And that kind of gives me the indication that they're a little bit more lethargic and they can't actually uh, dislodge that hook out of their mouth. Where in the summertime, metabolisms are high. Um, they probably have the energy to get off or a predator will come over there and get it and snag it off the, the line. So that, that's kind of the, the, the differences there. Um, we found that um, as far as the longevity goes, that uh, trot line hooks last about, uh, we got, we lost about 50% of our trot lines around, uh, looks like about 80 days. So uh, that doesn't really give much information on uh, whether it will continue fish or not, but, but these trot lines over time would just break down and get lost or broken. Others did really well. So really location played a big part in whether a trot line was going to be successful or not. One of our best uh, or longest lived trot lines was in a small cove that's not regularly fished. So that kind of joins into the theory of maybe uh, boat props probably being the reason why a lot of these top set trot lines are broken. Just want to make sure I heard you correctly. Did you say 14 weeks or was it 14 days? 14 weeks, 14 weeks is, is uh, the point when the Somerset trout lines stopped catching organisms. And it was about 48 weeks for the winter set trout lines to stop catching organisms. Yep. That's quite a long time for, for something to be out there still, still fishing. We were pretty surprised. Yeah. So is the, was, is this project pretty much wrapped up or is it a topic that you're still kind of interested in and looking into other questions? It, it, it is something I'm interested in. I'm, I'm uh, uh, taking on uh, a different direction in my project right now. But uh, one thing that was really interesting to me was the difference in how uh, fish were caught on these hooks versus turtles. What we found is that more than 90% of all the fish that were captured on these hooks actually physically bit the hook. So they were mouth caught. Where turtles was like the opposite. We saw uh, like 56, 65%. Um, depending on the season of turtles were actually body snagged. And of those turtles that were body snagged, they were within one or two adjacent hooks that were, that captured another organism. So it seemed like these turtles were actually predating on captured organisms and get snagged in the process. So as far as future work, I think there could be some work where you could actually uh, do some work on actually spreading these hooks out a little bit further to maybe give a, uh, uh, the opportunity for, for turtles to not get snagged so easily. Um, there's a big push now to uh, investigate alligator snapping turtles along with trot lines. So I'm sure there's, there could be some potential work there, you know, as well. That, 
think it would be a difficult thing to to nail down, but it would be interesting to learn, uh, I guess, what are people's motivations or reasons why why they abandon their gear? Is it simply that they forgot where they put it or are they just lazy? That would be an interesting thing if you could get people to tell the truth about it. That's right. That's right. That, that was one thing that always kind of bugged me because once in a while you would see a really expensive front line that was abandoned. And you know that they put into $100 plus in that trot line. So you kind of wonder if the angler uh, just had a philosophy that they'll, they'll bait it when they want. And, and uh, you know, knowing that that trot line will persist for a long period of time. So, yeah, you, you really don't know what, what the motivations are. So prior to working on freshwater issues, you, you, we mentioned that you spent 12 years in the marine world. It's what similarities and differences have you observed working in both the systems, marine and freshwater? One similarity between both is that the public really has a strong uh, favoritism towards stocking fish, you know, and uh, that's something that, that takes Sparks and Wildlife really puts a lot of emphasis in. And, you know, there's a lot of research potential to uh, continue um, increasing the production of uh, fishes of interest. I, I see some similarities between, you know, problems raising wallaby bass versus southern flounder you know the, those are both kind of newer species that we're trying to uh, uh, promote and and produce and so and and there's some that that are really easy to raise you got your largemouth bass and channel catfish versus red drum and spot sea trout so so coast fisheries division and inland fish the inland fisheries division are very similar in their uh in the way that they have different branches that, that focus on the resource and hatcheries and research. Um, as far as differences between the two environments, I, I think that on the coast, you tend to get a lot more uh, diversity of, of anglers, you know, because um, you think of all the people that are inland, you're in Kansas, you know, um, if you want to go to the coast, I don't know what, what coast you're going to go to, but there's only one coastline <laughs> that you really can go to, and that's the Gulf Coastline. And so there, you see a lot more diversity as far as the anglers go, um, where with the inland lake, you're probably going to get locals primarily, you know, unless it's a really popular uh, bass lake, like Lake Fork or something like that, where you get a lot of diversity. Um, as far as the fishing method differences, you know, we don't see the recreational uh, trot lines that you would with the freshwater waters in, in, in Texas's bays. Um, they they stopped doing that. I think it was in the late seventies, early eighties. But you do occasionally see some commercial uh, trot lining for black drum. And so uh, another good difference would be just with with saltwater fishing is just the diversity of fishes that you can potentially collect. You know, um, I was actually fishing in North Dakota last week, and the the angling style is so different in North Dakota. Then even in Texas, you know, in, in Texas, we fish uh, with bait casters oftentimes and, and fish around structure. Well, the lake I was fishing at, you know, you just kind of fish off the boat, drop it to a certain depth and just wait, you know, and that's that's really similar to what you see like offshore fishing off the offshore boats. So so there's lots of differences in just techniques, even between freshwater lakes uh, and offshore as well. You mentioned that you're kind of more in the research realm uh, while you're in Palacios. And one of the projects that kind of bridged the gap between the freshwater and the marine was one involving alligator gar. 
is what can you tell us about the the morphometrics or uh, specifically sexual dimorphism of that species? Yeah, that was a really interesting species uh, to work on. So we were collecting a lot of alligator gar within our resource sampling in Cedar Lakes, which is a smaller bay uh, close to uh, Sargent and Freeport. And so I thought it'd be a really neat idea to look at uh, sexual dimorphism between them and maybe potentially develop a method where we can uh, uh, determine the, the sex between these uh, fish without actually killing the fish. Because the current method was, of course, to, to uh, uh, actually examine the gonads. And, and so we had the fish available, and I just looked at a ton of different morphometrics, looking at different measurements of the head and the body and the fins and uh, was able to identify two really distinguishing characteristics. And that was that male, spot, uh, male alligator gar have longer anal fins than females, and females have a longer head length and snout length than males. And so um, I don't know if you, you uh, saw the, uh, the publication there, but, but I've got a nice visual there of, of, of uh, the male and female uh, skulls. Anyway, so... I knew that information. I knew that, that, that females tend to get larger than males. I knew that females had longer heads and snouts than males. I knew that males had longer anal fins than females, but I didn't really know how I could use that as a, as a tool. And I was going through the literature. There's nothing really out there. And there was some research that was done on bird beaks and they were able to distinguish uh, uh, the sex by looking at the ratio of bird beaks in relation to the skull. Um, with this one species of bird. And so I was like, well, let's just play around with the ratios and uh, was able to develop uh, two ratios that really worked. Um, able to do two box plots and actually uh, able to find that 75th percentile, which actually gave a really good percentage of uh, accuracy between the two sexes. And then when you look at one ratio, I, I think the first ratio was uh, snout length in relation to body length and the other one was the anal fin length in relation to the snout length and once you put those both together it kind of it gives you a percentage of accuracy with one it gives you percentage of accuracy with two when you combine them it gives you pretty strong accuracy with both so so that that became the serial body ratio method and um that paper got published i think in 2013 and then i started and, and I got a phone call from Dan Doherty, who works with the Inland Fisheries Division, the, the research group at the Heart of the Hills. And he wanted to uh, see if we can expand that research a little more and focus on some alligator gar there that, that were outside that range that I was looking at. And uh, maybe hopefully develop a, an equation, an equation that we can actually potentially uh, just plop in some, some measurements and, and give you not only the... Uh, the a guess of what the sex was but also the accuracy like a percentage of accuracy as well so we involved the help with warren slecky who also worked at the same uh, research lab and ultimately developed an equation so so really a person can just go out there and measure a snout length standard length and the anal fin length and and potentially plop it in this equation and get a uh, a sex and throw the fish back in the water alive. So.
Interesting, interesting stuff. Um, was that your first time kind of working with morphometrics and sexual dimorphism? Types it was with sexual dimorphism. Um, I had done some previous work looking at uh, the morphology between menhadens. I looked at the morphology between uh, sand and silver sea trout. These were collaborative projects. I worked with the geneticist Joel Anderson uh, at the lab at uh, Palacios. And so we're just kind of looking at um, the more, you know, what the keys say between the species. We also look at species that were easily mis id between our group, our sampling group. And so, so just looking at ways that we can actually uh, optimize a way, of, a, a way to, to ID these fishes in the field. And so we also looked at silver sides as well. Silver side is often like misidentified uh, uh, species with our resource team. So, so I did have some background with morphology. Uh, alligator gar were really easy. We didn't have to do any kind of trust analysis with Sigma scan or anything like that since they're such large fish. So it was actually a pretty easy project. Is there another project from your time at Palacios that you're especially fond of? Yes. Um, I really got to work a lot with the hatchery manager there, Paul Kaysen. And I was able to uh, collaborate also with a professor at Texas State, Joe Tommaso. And what I was interested in is just kind of diving into the uh, methodology of our hatchery groups. And there was something that, that, that kind of stood out that I just questioned. And they do a one-hour acclimation for every 10 part per, per thousand difference of salinity whenever they actually stock these fish in the bays. And so if you think in the natural world, uh, a fingerling fish, let's say about you know two inches or so, if, if it's being stocked in a bay, uh, if it's going into a bay that's a lot less salty than what's in that trailer, that's something that they would encounter in the field, you know, in nature. You know, if there's a rainstorm, they'll encounter that. But one thing that they don't, will never encounter is a, uh, a change from a, a fresher body of water to an extremely salty. They're just not built for that. So I, I questioned the acclimation uh, amount of time. It's like, is that, is that written down somewhere? And I kind of got nowhere with that answer. I was like, well, we need to investigate this. And so we actually uh, developed a study where we actually uh, got fish that were, were harvested. We brought them to our, our tank. We actually drove them down the road. Like they were, they would be driven down a road and, and, and stocked. And we brought them to our lab and actually exposed them to uh, salinities that were 10 parts per thousand. 20 parts per thousand higher than, than, than what they would experience in the field and then looked at different acclimation times. So that was really neat to find out that anything over 10 parts per thousand difference ultimately would kill the fish. To me, it was eye-opening and, I, and I'm, I'm sure the hatchery employed that information with their methodology now. Yeah, yeah. Probably made those hatcheries a lot more efficient of, of where they put their fish or they're more efficient with their time. So as we work our way back in time throughout your, your career, we, we come to your master's work at Texas State University. Uh, you studied fountain darters. Uh, were you interested in steam stream fish or uh, was it kind of just a project that uh, was easy for the taking for you? I was, I was at the right place at the right time. Tim Bonner was just starting his lab and he brought along with him one, one student uh, from Louisiana, Casey Williams, who actually uh, went to go see this last week in North Dakota and uh, brought, 
brought him in and he was needing another student. He himself had done some work on Fountain Daughters himself. And um, at the time I was a seasonal technician as uh, at, at, at the lab I work at right now. And John Findeisen told me, he said, he said, now, if you want to be a biologist, you need to get into graduate school. And I've got a buddy who I went to school with who's actually starting a program at Texas State. He was going to replace Bobby Whiteside. And so I gave him a call, told him who I was. And what was really funny about our interaction is he said, now, Dusty, you know, uh, in the fisheries world, you're going to be a scientist. You need to use your professional name. You need to be Dustin. I said, well, it's Dusty. <laughs> you know, that's what my parents named me. So, so anyway, uh, I'm probably the first Dusty who's a fisheries biologist. <laughs> Anyway, uh, came in and, and he had a pro- he had a project already set up, uh, wanting to look at uh, fluctuating temperatures. We wanted to see if uh, if the Edwards Aquifer were to uh, uh, go through a drought a drought scenario, or if San Antonio were to pull more water from the aquifer, uh, if if the flows decreased and ambient temperatures caused uh, the river temperature to increase. Uh, would would fountain darters potentially uh, be able to be successful with the reproduction? So we looked at fecundity and natality. And then at the time, which is an ongoing issue, uh, there was a gill parasite that the, that's that's uh, uh, a big problem with the fountain darters called uh, Centrocestus formicanus. And so we actually incorporated a parasitic uh, 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 fish along with a, a non-infected fish. And so we looked at all, all those parameters and actually found that any type of fluctuation, whether it be uh, two degrees beyond 24 degrees Celsius is detrimental to uh, the fecundity and natality of fountain darters. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure that all that work is uh, especially relevant now with, with climate change becoming more, uh, more of a focus of some of these topics of stream fish and how they'll survive increasing water temperatures was was that a concern at all in, in any of your thesis work or was it uh, more with the, the water level stuff we were mainly just focused on learning more about what the limitations are on this on the, the fish itself um we also were interested because i, I i'm founders um were really showing lots of sign of signs of these parasites in their gills and so uh, the director at that lab, Tom Brandt, was interested in looking at, you know, could if there was ever an increase in these parasites, what life stage is most vulnerable to that? So I actually did this uh, pretty nasty study where we actually had to kill a lot of fountain darters of different life stages, but we got some really good information. You know, uh, uh, the, the smaller the fish is, the quicker they could die uh, from this parasite. And I guess is the, is the parasite just a natural thing? that comes in waves or is there a, uh, it was brought in with a mill, um, like an aquarium snail that's pretty much taken over the, uh, uh, San Marcos and the Kamau rivers. And, um, so it's called Melanoides tuberculata and, uh, it's, it's got a pretty unique life stage where, um, it uses two, uh, two hosts and then like a main host, the main host being, if I remember correctly, is is uh, fishing bird. So um, the snail will actually produce a free swimming cercaria, 
the free the free swimming cercaria will actually uh, uh, find out find the urea of uh, a fish gill, and at, over time will will actually embed itself in a gill filament and form a cyst. And uh, over time, these fish have uh, a difficult time actually respirating, so they'll actually go to the surface of the water. And that kind of triggers uh, a fishing bird to come down and eat it. The cercaria then actually goes through the process. This is stuff I haven't thought about in 20 years, but uh, will actually be uh, uh, grown to a certain life stage within the guts of the bird, be defecated, and then the snails will eat the defecated uh, uh, egg of these, uh, of these cercaria. So they actually use three hosts. It's fascinating how some of these parasites have uh, evolved into use, utilizing the different hosts to survive. It's uh, pretty complex for how small and simple they are. And, and affecting such a small system like that, you know. So moving even further back in your past, you mentioned you received your bachelor's degree at Shriners College. And you mentioned in an email that you were originally an English major. Uh, what made you switch over to biology? Well, I think I, I talked to enough people that were English majors and professors to know that that was a very tough job to break into. I wanted to write books, actually. And um, I think kind of reading the, the writing on the wall made me think that, well, I might need to go a different direction. I was a business major prior to that. And so I, I had to make up a biology course at a small junior college one summer. And just fell in love with it. Uh, the um, the biology teacher made it really fun. And uh, when I went back to Shriner for uh, my my senior year, I, I actually changed advisors and uh, got with Dr. Fred Stevens. And he said, "Well, you're going you have a lot of makeup to do." And so I was pretty much just doing upper level science courses my last two years at Shriner. Yeah, and he was actually a graduate student of Clark Hubbs, who's considered by many to be one of the godfathers of ichthyology. And so he actually exposed me uh, to some research on Texas shiners. And so, so that kind of, I mean, you see like everything kind of led to where I am now, you know. It's amazing how, how small some of these networks are. And I think I was talking with somebody at the, the latest American Fisheries Society meeting that uh, you could probably play that six degrees of separation game with uh, almost anybody at the conference and figure out, Oh, you, you probably have some mutual people somewhere in those six degrees. Uh, I believe it. And probably some it. pretty big names in there as well. Oh, well, Dusty, the tough part of the interview is now over as we are down to the final five questions. And this is a group of five questions that we ask each of the guests to come on the show. And we always start real simple with what is your favorite fish? Stargasm fish. Have you seen one? I don't think I've ever seen one. Look it up. It's very intricate. It's considered a frogfish, and it's just so bizarre and so interesting. And it lives in sargasm, just like a sea seaweed, you know. And it blends in. There's there's sargasm shrimp. There's sargasm fish. There's sargasm everything. It seems like uh, sargasm slugs, but it's just a really unique creature that has developed a you know a way to live in this ecosystem of sargasm. It's really neat looking. I'm looking at it now. It is a very interesting looking fish. I guess a, uh, like if you had a fish that looked like a leafy sea dragon, kind of. Yeah, yeah. but more frog-like. Yep. So what is your favorite memory from your career so far? From my career? Um, 
you know, I, I thought about this question and career is, is kind of a loose term. You know, what really got me into fishing was fishing with my dad. And so my best memory of fishing and getting started in my career was those memories made with my dad and his buddies fishing at Port Mansfield. And, uh, you know, it's this, it's this area on the coastline that's, uh, you have to drive like 20 miles down a beach to a, a set of jetties and the diversity of fish that were available there that when they were younger, they would actually uh, collect uh, fish for Goliath groupers when it was legal. And, um, so you'll see like comb groupers and cutlass fish and very, just the, you never know, never knew what you were going to catch there. So, so that's my best fishing type memory. Perhaps you're already in it, but what is your dream job or dream location to work in? And it took a long time to get where I'm at now. I'm, I'm, I'm living in the town that I grew up in. That's rare to, to be able to come back home and work. Uh, so really just like living here with my family, uh, I work with a great team of biologists, of like-minded scientists, and, um, you know, I've, I've, I've got, you know, a great respect to my group in Palacios. Um, but you know, a lot of these smaller knit, uh, places, you know, it's kind of hard to break in, uh, the community. And so, you know, coming back home, it kind of just opens a lot of other types of doors. And so, yeah, um. I'm, I'm living it. If money was not an issue, what is one project that you'd like to work on? You know, we talked about, uh, you know, developing a tool to uh, determine the uh, sex of alligator gar. I, I think there's a way to optimize that and, and bring that, that type of methodology to different threatened and endangered species. So uh, there's potential for uh, learning more about um, great species of great concern to kind of kind of help out, you know, determining the sex. Once you determine the sex, you can determine a lot more about uh, the population of the species. So uh, it, it would be that. And finally, if there is one point or one principle that you could have programmed into everyone's head, what would it be? That would be uh, to change the mindset that humans are the only beings who need water. Well, Dusty, thank you for coming on the podcast today. It was a pleasure talking to you and hearing about all your past research and ghost fishing of, of trout lines. If people want to find out more information or get a hold of you, what would be the best way to do that? It would be uh, my email, which is dusty.mcdonald, that's spelled like the restaurant, at tpwd.texas.gov. And if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at fisheriespod or old-fashioned email feedback at thefisheriespodcast.com. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. You can download past, present, and future episodes on your favorite listening app or stream it from Spotify or thefisheriespodcast.com. And don't forget, you can help support the podcast with a monthly contribution through Patreon or by rocking some awesome Fisheries Podcast logo shirts and hoodies available on Teespring. I am Nick Kramer, and thank you for listening to the Fisheries Podcast. And remember to change the mindset that humans are not the only beings that need water.